Welcome to the Salad Days podcast, featuring interviews with your favorite artists, talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days and hang out for a bit. Our journey this week features our special guests, Matthias Kamm and Ariel Sharat from the band Burning Hell. Okay, so before we jump in, I'm going to give a bit of context on the way I see some of these conversations uh, uh, as it relates to the days when I used to tour in a van and be lucky enough to actually meet and talk to artists, bands, people in bands uh, on a daily basis. And you got a chance to know the people behind the music. You got a chance to see what they're really about. So I found that often the better you knew the the people, the more you would like their music. And one of the things about a long form podcast conversational setup like this is my hope is that you're getting a chance to know the people behind the music at a very personal level. And so I would, at a, in a similar way, I'm going to direct this comment to some of the people that I know are listening to this podcast, or I think they are anyway, people like Mark, Krista, Chris, even Helen. Uh, my hope is that what you will take from this interview is even though you may not know The Burning Hell or some of the other artists that I speak to on this podcast, these conversations, that you will come to know them as people, or at least a little better, it will inspire you to go out and check out their music, see them live, and experience music for what it's meant to be, which is very personal. So thanks for listening, and here is Ariel and Matthias from The Burning Hell. You said it, uh, the, the second way, Matthias. Matthias, okay, good. Ariel's yes. Ariel. I'm Ariel. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Cool. Okay, good, good. Okay, so so basically uh whenever whenever I start, uh one of the first things I like to do is to comment on uh sort of our shared history, something that we have we've done together in the in, you know, over the our time and of course I with uh with both of you, uh what I really think of is uh of course the very first time you invited uh the inbreds at Delanya Vanya. And that was uh, so many things about it were good, but one of the things was, uh, you know, I remember flying out and I was on this plane where I, you know, I did put the old phone in flight mode and, uh, I was waiting to hear back on, uh, getting this really sweet job. And sure enough, um, as we're landing, I turned the phone on and I got the job. It's a great job. I'm going to do this festival, um, with a whole bunch of bands that I kind of knew peripherally through Zinger, but had never met before, including, um, you know, you guys bring hell and, and uh, I think maybe even Wax. No, I had met Wax Mannequin before, but B.A. Johnson, uh, Weather Station, all kinds of things. It was it was like being invited into a brand new world. What do you remember about that very first time that we uh, were hanging in uh, on the rock? Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's a treasured memory, I think, for both of us. Uh, so there's a few things that I remember in particular about that time. Uh, one was just the feeling of the ungettable get of getting the inbreds to come and play on Yvonne, <laughs> which had been on our bucket list since we started the festival as huge fans. Um, at second of all, I remember uh, Sandy and Ian offered you their basement as a jam space. And yes. I sat up there giggling the whole time because they were also huge inbreds fans and so excited to have you guys 
jamming in their basement. Yeah, that was great. Um, and then I remember, oh my gosh, I remember, uh, yeah. Can I say one? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. sorry. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, the, the, the main set that you played uh, that weekend was at The Ship, which is, you know, obviously a, it's a wonderful sort of legendary pub venue. Um, and people loved it and it was amazing. But the, the most special, uh, performance memory for me from that weekend was the little mini set that you did in the basement of model citizens, which was like a clothing shop in St. John's. And, uh, we had done a lot of those kinds of, um, one-off sort of performances in unusual spaces over the course of the, the years of the festival. Um, but that one is the one that I always think back to as just the most, the coolest and the most exciting, you know, like, I don't know how many people were there, 20, 30 people. We fit in as many yep. as we could. Yep. It's tiny. And it was just like it on the one hand was, I think so special for all the people there um, who were huge fans of your music, but um, also just so special, such a cool vibe because it took me back to like, like high school basement shows and it was really like emblematic of i think like what music can be in 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 those sorts of situations like a sort of fun all-encompassing wonderful uh interactive experience and i'll never forget that that set as long as i live yeah i agree i, I remember it, it it really sounded quite good too so uh it, yeah it was it was really fun i mean the whole there, there's many other things i could say about that event but uh maybe we'll get to them later but 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 that was a great uh sort of uh setup but f- so uh the the first main question is just uh for both of you tell us uh uh where you're calling or we're calling actually calling where you're coming from today and where you grew up respectively oh sure uh yeah i am calling from fairfield Prince Edward Island, or we're talking, we're in Fairfield, Prince Edward Island right now, both Matthias and I. And I grew up in Montague, Prince Edward Island. So not too far away from the birthplace here. Yeah, we moved here about eight years ago. So for Ariel, it was sort of a homecoming. And for me, it was a a new experience. Um, I grew up in Winnipeg and then Kingston, Ontario. Okay, that's great. Okay, so uh, some of these questions, we'll do the same thing. We'll kind of do, uh, you can just sort of hand off uh, uh, ones that are uh, um, hand-offable. But the first question I always like to start the show with, because the idea is, because it's Sally Days, we're going to try to go back to when, really when you were in high school or maybe even younger. And so the question I ask is that, imagine we want to get the feeling of being in your house on a Friday or Saturday night, and there's something on the stove, and you know maybe you remember it really well. And then the question is, um, what what was on the stove and why do you remember it so well? Well, if we're talking about high school, um, I moved out when I was pretty young and it took me many years to develop my cooking skills. So I would have to say that almost certainly what's on the stove is craft dinner. And I remember <laughs> it so well because I don't think anyone in the world has eaten as much craft dinner as I did in high school. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, for me, it would probably be some kind of wholesome soup. I grew up with a couple of crunchy granola folks. Um, my mother yeah. in particular fed me very well. So uh, we consumed a lot of soup, <laughs> lots of vegetables, lots of good wholesome broth. Um, yeah. <laughs> And that's why you're, and that's why Ariel grew to a, a, a normal human height, and my my growth stopped um, around age sixteen. Now you know. Okay. Now one thing that's interesting about the the, the Kingston connection, of course, um, 
you know, the, the, the inbreds, uh, I grew up in Oshawa, started the band in Kingston and stayed a few years after. And through our various connections in Kingston, um, uh, playing and, and, you know, we started this thing called PF records and we made cassettes and we released them and, and did all that kind of good stuff. So one of the, one of the bands that we had connected with was a band called the Caspers and, um, good friends, uh, still friends to this day. And, uh, I believe that there's, I don't think that I understood there was a Casper's connection until maybe much later on with yourself, Matthias is, can you remind me what the, the, like the Kingston connection, did you actually live with some of the Casper's? No, I never did. But, um, so they were like, uh, a couple years older than me at KCVI, my high school. And, uh, they were like the cool, the cool band, you know, that, that all the people my age looked up to and wanted to be. And I don't think like, I don't think they have any idea how influential they were on like the kids that were like maybe a year or two younger than them. Um, and same, same for yourself. I mean, I think like everything that you were doing at the time in Kingston, um, just had such a major, uh, influence and impact on, a whole generation of, of young people in Kingston that were sort of just getting into music. So the Caspers, like I knew them, you know, to say hi eventually, but for most of high school, I was like too intimidated to talk to them. Um, we, I think my high school band played one show in like a gym in the high school gym and they were also on the bill. And it was, yeah, that was the highlight of my, my high school career for sure. Um, it was, it was a really big deal to me. I also remember, um, you know, many sort of summertime road trips in high school where uh, we, we would listen to the Casper's album, Driving Along a Massive Dam, just over and over again. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Like I said, like I would love to, I haven't talked to those guys. I'm, I don't even know if they know I exist, but I haven't talked to those guys in years. And, and I would love to know whether they know uh, what uh, impression they made on myself and a whole bunch of other people my age. I'll certainly try to make sure that they, uh, maybe hear this, but, uh, you know, when I think of the time, uh, that we were in Kingston and, and, you know, uh, I was going to Queens and when it came time to, you know, start playing music, uh, one of the things as far as the, like, I'd call it like the, the ground level in the city, as you were talking there, it just reminded me of the, the idea of postering and how, um, making posters and, you know, really, um, uh, you know, like I was really serious about it. I had a whole system and I used to poster for every single show and I would do so much of that. And I, I, you know, on some of the other conversations I've had with people, we've talked about the, uh, yeah, I guess the changes in the ways that music have, I mean, just getting, getting, getting the word out has changed so much with social media, YouTube, blah, blah, blah. But it makes me think of postering. And I'm, sometimes I, uh, I had the, like I had the occasion to be back in Kingston a couple of weeks ago, um, with my, with my lemonade uh, thing that I do, uh, I deliver to a couple places there. And so I was walking around and I was thinking about all the posters that I used to put up and, and how, uh, that might've been, uh, somewhat of a, you know, a, a menace, uh, to the, uh, local, uh, non music loving people in Kingston. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, I, 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 I still think posters are important. I mean, it just depends on where you live and stuff like that. But like, that was crucial for, for us too, in, in high school and, and university and, um, I have, I have super fond memories of, of, of postering and, you know, making like designing a poster and, and then, you know, Xeroxing it and then taking it around. And I, I miss, I miss that. I mean, I don't miss like doing it in the middle of winter. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I do, I do miss that. And I, I feel like also, you know, we were sort of all promised 
um, with with social media that this would be a great way to to let people know we wouldn't have to do this kind of uh, hands on hands on deck you know boots on the ground promotion anymore. But um, as we all know, you know the various social media platforms have. Uh, quickly become not so great at at ways of promotion and and uh i think we need a return to to the sort of more tactile kind i miss it anyway. yes yes ariel let's let's go back to um pei a uh, couple of thoughts on that just in terms of again when you were in high school uh on one of the early conversations we had with charles austin we were talking about um uh connections he has into the band's uh, two hours traffic um, and the connections that they go into Molly Rankin and always, and I've been and played a few times in PEI. What was it like when you were in high school? What was the musical, uh, or maybe even like pre-music scene for you? Uh, okay. Yeah. So, um, two hours traffic, always very cool bands. Uh, however, the music scene for me revolved around, uh, the Lions Club in Montague, um, where I think, some local and regional punk bands would play and I don't even know who they were anymore, but we would always go to that and buy cassettes out of the back of their cars. Um, and I wish I still had those cassettes, but like so many other things, they are lost to time and my memory. Um, as, as far as, uh, yeah, the, the bands that have come out of PEI, um, since, yeah, certainly in my early twenties, those two hours traffic and then, uh, a lot of the guys who became uh, Kiwi Junior and uh, always were, yep. were to go to those shows. That was more my Charlottetown phase after my high school Montague phase. It was harder to get into town. Um, yeah, so I was, I'd be home for the summers and, and see them playing. It was, it was cool. I mean, I feel like I never really uh, got into, was part of the PEI music scene so much i didn't really start playing music out and about until i moved to ontario and then especially in newfoundland so a lot of my like musical formative stories are more in those places than pei uh i, I mean as a fan certainly but not as a musician yeah what what kind of music would you have had in your in your house um you know maybe maybe at that, you know, that younger age maybe 12 13 what, what kind of what kind of music was playing Oh, okay. Uh, 12, 13. Well, my parent, I mean, first of all, there's my parents who were, you know, of course, uh, coming out of like a, a 70s hippie thing. And they were part of a big crew of people who played music. And so that was a big part of my life was like Bob Dylan and the band. <laughs> um, but then as yeah. I was kind of around that age, I guess it ex- uh, experiencing music for the first time as like a, a chooser of music. Um, yeah, well, my dad came back from the ECMAs with a Thrush Hermit uh, EP that, uh, very foundational for me at the time nice. because it was, uh, I was like, damn, this is so close. Um, and yeah, I think that led to me going to those Lions Club shows in a way was just, uh, suddenly, I don't know, something about the idea that people around me were making cool rock music was very exciting. I think, I mean, that's exciting for a lot of young people <laughs> like Matthias and Kingston. And um, yeah. And then otherwise it was like president of the United States of America, Oasis, Beck. And uh, yeah, that was probably the records. I, oh, Alanis Morissette. Those were the records I was listening to at 12. Yeah. That's, that's a good mix. Uh, 
What, what about you? What about you, Matthias? What do you say for that same time? Ariel and I had slightly different parents uh, in terms of their musical taste, and uh, so so like like her, like twelve and thirteen is a really interesting age to think back on um, listening because for a lot of people, I think it's kind of a watershed age. It's a time when you're you're still sort of listening to the stuff that you're listening to because your parents were listening to it. So for me, that was like Creedence Clearwater Revival, and like, but then also like Paul Butterfield, and like just like you know <laughs> Chicago, and like. Um, stuff like that and Beach Boys, um, Buddy Holly. My mom was like a huge Buddy Holly fan, so a lot of Buddy Holly. Um, but then around that age, I think a lot of people start, you know, start making their own, some of their own choices. And so for me, like my earliest, the earliest thing that I bought for myself was the Men Without Hats album, Pop Goes the World. Um, nice, yeah. Mostly followed by Attack of the Killer Bees by Anthrax. Um, and <laughs> remember, uh, uh, give me convenience or give me death, dead Kennedys. It was a strange time. You know, I was listening to like, like looking back on it now, all of those things don't necessarily belong together. Um, but 12 or 13 was also like a little before I even realized that there was a local music scene. So like, I don't remember really listening to any Kingston music until, until high school. Um, so yeah, it's such a, it's such a fascinating time. Like when your taste is developing that way and I'm still, you know, I'm not embarrassed by, by any of it. Cause I think it all sort of contributes to who I am today, but um, yeah, I certainly haven't revisited that anthrax album in, in many years, for example. Well, one thing that when I think of, you're right, it's the, the form of years. And I think of the, the actual music that you're listening to, but in context of this, um, uh, this conversation, I like to ask about stages or the stage. So, in my, uh, for example, in my case, I've I've talked about some some of the first times I ever saw live music, and or the first time I was ever on a stage. But one uh, that comes to mind for some reason because I'm thinking you mentioned the KCVI. So at my high school, um, there was this battle of bands, and um, a bunch of bands played. But what I remember is, and, and my band uh, was was one of them. But there was this sort of uh, I would call it uh, you know it was a punk a punk band. Somebody really trying to take on what to me struck me as legitimate punk and they were called death by death by slow torture. And, uh, for some reason I recall that being a, uh, you know, experience of watching a band on stage. Cause I hadn't really had a chance to see much in any way, shape or form before that. And thinking, uh, it was just really exciting. Again, like the sound, the sound of everything, like from the kick drum coming through to the, the visual of, these guys kind of jumping around. It was, that was a, a really important, um, given the, you know, the going on to the stage later where I never, and I never did anything, uh, like acting or anything before, but it was just, you know, being on a stage was music, but it was those influences that really affected me. Do you think in either case, uh, for you both have an example like that? I mean, yeah, I would, uh, like to, when you're asking about, you know, Charlottetown bounds and whatnot, yeah, I grew up in in a very rural place, but we did also have a battle of the bands. In fact, one of my first promoting experiences was uh, in like grade nine. I uh, I helped uh, put off Rocktoberfest. Um, thank you very much. And which was <laughs> yeah. uh, legendary, which uh, featured uh, such bands as Live Elephants and UFO Tofu, who uh, were were good pals of mine. I think at that point, you know, it was also difficult because like I, I felt incredibly intimidated by the idea of being on stage i felt very much more comfortable kind of you know supporting the boys and uh and that has been a a fun shift in my life to not (laughs) be in that position anymore but at the time like it was it was also profoundly uh 
exciting and and my way of like trying to to figure out how I could be part of music because I loved it so much. I just felt very shy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and for me, I think like I don't remember. I'm sure that there was like a battle of the bands kind of thing, um, but I don't remember one, and I definitely never took part in one. Um, but I do remember sort of occasional gigs at 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 KCVI, either in the gym or the drama room. Um, but but more influential, I think, were all the basement shows. My high school experience was really um, shaped by the idea that sort of anyone could be in a band and. Lots of people were in bands. Some of those bands only lasted for one show. Um, but all of the sort of most formative um, experiences watching bands play, they weren't on stages. They were just, you know, in the corner of a basement and there were a whole bunch of other people, you know, hanging around and and, uh, and it was loud and it was it was probably sounded terrible, but, I you know, I didn't have a, uh, a clue about that at the time. It, just, it was just an awesome experience to just, you know, feel like anyone could make music. So... Yeah, bands like the Caspers, uh, Girl Soup—that's a deep Kingston reference—and um, uh, and and bands like like other bands in my high school that would you know just come and go. The Jocks had like a rival band. I don't know if they were actually our rivals, but they probably didn't think about us. But they were they were called, and I am not kidding. They were called All Twelve Inches, um, and they used to cover. You know, like you know how like like there's occasionally these days there's occasionally like people on Twitter who like don't like Republicans and stuff that clearly don't understand that Rage Against the Machine has always been like a, a left wing band. Yeah. Well, I think all Twelve Inches invented that because they used to cover Rage Against the Machine like at the time when Rage was first like first popular, and yeah, I don't think they got it anyway. So lots of experiences like that, um, just shows at parties and and just the feeling that like literally anyone could do this. It was awesome. Okay, that's cool. That's that's great. So uh, for this conversation, I'd like to break it into four parts. So the second part is to go to uh, you know a, a vintage track, uh, something that you recorded a long time ago. And for for this purpose, uh, as you you sent it to me earlier today, and uh, um, this is going to be Matthias solo and the song. The, it's called the early version of "I Love the Things That People Make," and so here it is. And the sound of spinning tape I love the things that people make I love the tricycles I love the synagogue I love the Lego And I love the Lincoln Long I love the fishing lures I love the birthday cake I love the things that people make Knives, I love the garden gnome. I love the way that people decorate their homes. I love the toilets and I love the plumber snakes. I love the things that people make. I love the bowling balls. I love the little wind-up teeth. I love the manhole covers and I love the Christmas wreaths. I love the backyard goldfish ponds. I love the artificial lakes. I love the things that people make. I love the things that people make. I love the things that people make. 
Okay, that was the vintage track. Um, and uh, every we've done a few of these uh, conversations, and everyone's a little bit different. I love I love these 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 old tracks, um, and they always make me think of something you know in context of what you know what the artist you know became right. And so my question to you here is: so I'm listening to this song. And uh, you you use the term I think in your email cringeworthy, but I can let you explain that. I think it sounds amazing. And then I went back and I listened to the the album version that came later. And the thing that stuck out to me is, and this is something I've never talked about before, but the, the singing range. How did you come upon choosing the singing range that you um, register or whatever you want to call it that you have now or on a lot of your recorded material? To my understanding. Uh, versus the original, this kind of original version and the recorded version. Um, am I correct that the original version is kind of like the register that you maybe chose down the road? Well, it's a bit weird because, like the you know the 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 sort of album version that you reference is also I would call I would say cringeworthy. Um, I hate both of them, um, and <laughs> I feel like it, it is. I, I'm not sure. Equally, yeah, maybe equally, um, but. Uh, I can't listen like like a lot of people. Like I have a hard time even now listening to the sound of my own voice. Um, but I do think like listening back to older recordings, it has you know taught me that um, at at a certain age, anyway. I'm not sure exactly when. Probably not that long ago, really. I kind of just accepted that my voice is my voice, and I sort of found my. Uh, my natural voice, and and it took me a long time to do that, and I, I I'm not sure why. I guess it comes down to sort of insecurity or wanting to try and sound like other people, other singers that I admired. Um, but definitely in those early, like that that the era, like early 2000s, when when that recording you played is from um, the recording that that came from. There's 33 songs on it, and I use a diff- totally different voice on almost all of them, and they all sound awful. Um, but, uh, but it was kind of an experiment. I think I didn't realize it at the time, but it was, I was experimenting with like who I was as a singer and, um, you know, not, I'm not claiming at all that I've become a, a good singer or even a better singer than since then, but I've definitely found my, what I think of as my natural voice. And I don't think I try, I don't have to try hard to be someone else, uh, anymore, which is good. So I think like there is a a real value for me in in listening back to, to old recordings, even though I try to do it. Uh, as little as possible. Um, but the, the voice is a funny thing. I mean, I would say the same thing about musicianship in general, um, that, you know, often in the past, like, I would try to do things that I wasn't quite capable of doing, but the trying and failing was, was important um, in, that, in that journey. I just think that the first time uh, you hear the burning hell, uh, undeniably something you're going to notice is the registry that you sing in. And uh, I can certainly say for myself that was one of the. It's literally it sort of stands out, and then, and then you just realize this this is this is you, and you 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 just you love it, you know, and and that's what you've been doing. Um, it, but it really think it is a sort of a signature part of your whole, um, you know, musical element uh, for the band. It's it's such a unique thing, and and but when I listen to these two songs uh, again, like the original version and the other one, it almost it almost made me think of that era where. Bob Dylan chose to sing in a different, uh, you know, a, a, sort of like yeah. a different register. And then he, and then he kind of went back. Uh, that just sort of popped into my head. Anyway, I don't know. No, totally. And I think it's interesting because I, I think from a technical 
standpoint, I think my range has increased uh, a lot since then, um, both on the lower end and on the higher end, or at least I'm more comfortable going high. Like on our last record, Garbage Island, like I sing in a, I often do like a wax mannequin style, like doubling where I do one low octave and one higher octave. Yes. And I can't, you know, I can't claim to be any great shakes as a, as a, as a falsetto, but, um, but, uh, but I, you know, I'm, I'm trying more with that kind of thing and, and trying to expand, expand my range and, and get comfortable with that. Um, so yeah, it's fun. It's funny. It's a funny thing. I guess we all need to be sort of comfortable with our voices or, or at least to just accept that it is what it is. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't sort of push in different directions too. Yeah. It's a great question. Okay. There is a, this is an observation. Maybe this will bring in some, some, uh, comments from Ariel, but, uh, I was thinking about, you know, of course, again, the musicality on that recording is really quite good. But when I think of some things that the burning hell went on to do later, I think of the place of keyboards and, uh, early keyboards. And of course that track doesn't have it, but it makes me think of a story where, you know, I started, I started really trying to play guitar and then I started doing drums, but somewhere around that same time, I got access to this, um, kind of uh, not a Casio, but a slightly bigger old school keyboard that my brother bought. And what I was able to do was plug it into this giant bass amp that we have. And I used to sit in the basement and put on, I used to call it like the deep purple sound, sort of like a, you know, like a, a fuzzed at Rhodes or something like that. And I would just sit there and, and, and really, I would turn it up really loud. Like it must've been so annoying in the house, but it was, I would call it almost like trance without a beat. And of course I don't know how to play keyboard. Uh, and I'm just kind of like messing around, but I used to make these little, kind of circular things. And I just loved that it was almost shaking the floor. Uh, but there was, you know, there's kind of like this early, I just find you hear a lot about, well, certainly on these conversations I've had so far, we hear a lot about guitar and we hear a lot about recording technique, but we're just, cause, because I think keyboards is such an important part of the burning hell. Where, where, where does keyboards uh, come in either going early or early experiences with keyboards? Well, okay. So, in the beginning, in the early, early days uh, of the band, there were lots of keyboards happening. Um, uh, Michael Duguay and Jordy Gordon in particular played a lot of keys on a few different records. But then Ariel and I moved to Newfoundland and we started recording with a new crew out there. And there, we didn't, we didn't have a, a dedicated keyboard player. And then we discovered that one of the folks we were playing with, who was our, our drummer, Jake Nickel, uh, was also an incredible uh, keyboard player. And so in future records, he started, um, playing a lot more keys. Um, but Ariel, like in the people and public library album eras. Yeah. I, I think for those two records, uh, keys were maybe just more like, Oh, there's, um, a piano in the studio. This song could use a little bit of piano or, uh, we do like a funny little organ intro, but I don't, I can't remember keys being like a major part of people public library or revival beach um but then uh since matthias and i bought a house we realized that now we have lots of space to put keyboards and other instruments in so our palette has greatly expanded <laughs> now that we have space and are not living out of suitcases all over the world um, yeah yeah most mostly with pretty cheap stuff like i i, I love um i love cheap keyboard sounds um much more than what i would think of as like professional sounds you know like we don't have a Rhodes or or, or a proper we don't even have a proper acoustic piano 
Um, but we got lots of, uh, you know, old Casios, old Yamaha crappy things, um, some wonky old, uh, you know, organs, um, an incredible, uh, keyboard called a ream ream, uh, started as an air conditioning company, but at some point they wow. thought, why don't we, we should make keyboards too. Cause that <laughs> makes sense. And, uh, it, you know, they're all really janky and kind of dirty and, and, and crusty sounding, but, um, that's, that's what I'm always drawn to. So the last couple records, Garbage Island, and then the duo album that Ariel and I made called Never Work, uh, feature a lot of, um, a, a lot of those cheap, cheap keyboard sounds. Yeah. And Garbage Island in particular, I think the keys become much more of a focus. Um, Jake and I both played keys on that record. So there's a lot of Juno 106 sounds on there. Um, and uh and yeah i think they sound great <laughs> yeah that's that, that's a uh, that's that's true we we definitely had time for garbage island because it was recorded during the pandemic so um and i think you need time with keys uh, you know um, if you're really going for for weirder stuff then then it's fun to to have no no studio time limit to uh to mess around um yeah the yeah. the keyboard uh, discussion really really makes me want to talk about um, your contributions to B.A. Johnson, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Um, Yay. For now, for now, I'd like to move the discussion to the third part, which, which, which we call Music Becoming Real. And the idea here is we're now going from those early recordings, we're going to the point where you're just starting to play music, and this would be, you've already covered some of the pieces, but we're going to focus in on, you know, the, the earliest, earliest days of your um, efforts, um, you know, playing and, and, and getting getting off the ground and music become real means the point where you've been kind of doing things for fun but all of a sudden you kind of something happens and you sort of look you say to yourself this this could be something that I do for a long time and when you mentioned Kingston one of the things that I think of from our era some of the earliest uh, things that we did with the inbreds of course you know recording and 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 doing all these all this kind of like southern Ontario touring uh, but it got to the point where we, we were able to, you know, record a CD, then a second CD. Uh, and we were lucky enough to get asked to do some shows with another Kingston band, the Tragically Hip. And uh, the result of that was doing, being the opening act on another Roadside Attraction, which had us playing a very big, um, the first band in these very huge shows. And But the point I was going to make about music becoming real was not playing the shows, but was around uh, the SoCan check that we got as a result of playing those shows. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. what happens is, uh, you know, the, the ticket price kind of goes into the machine and then it kind of gets spit back out to all the people that were, um, you know, performing original music at those shows. So there was this point when we were in Kingston, still pretty new to the whole thing. We ended up getting this one really big SoCan check. And it was some of the first kind of little chunk of money maybe that I ever had. And I just thought it was so funny what I chose to buy with it. Uh, in my case, it was a, a TV, sort of like a, you know, one of those fairly big, but old school with big back on it, TV, and then a couch. And we were probably out in the, the Cataraqui Mall or something like that, getting, you know, going to the, the brick or whatever. Uh, but that I that was definitely, when you can buy a TV and a couch, you know music's getting real. So uh, in your case, what, what would you say uh, maybe one or a few points uh, were were the burning hell. You thought to yourself, this is becoming real. Well, um, Ariel and I uh, are one payment away from paying off the first couch either of us have ever bought uh, right now. So uh, <laughs> it's taken us a while to get to that point, um, uh, the couch stage. Um, but, uh, but for me, 
I have like a, a very specific sort of origin story. Um, I was living in Peterborough and I was, um, I just finished my master's degree and I was sort of just teaching some, you know, I was TAing some courses at Trent and the students were great and everything, but like, I, it wasn't my dream job. And I was going through some stuff and, and I, I just thought, no, screw this. I'm going to quit doing this for a little while. I'm going to get out of this world. And at that time I would, I had just sort of started to play shows with my own music. Um, and just around Peterborough and, um, this is like, I don't know, 2007 or so. And, uh, and I thought to myself, I'm going to quit this, these jobs at, at Trent and, and I'm going to just try and do music, only music for one year and see what happens. And I had no, I tried not to pressure myself like into, you know, oh, I need to do this and this or achieve this and this in order to keep going. So I just thought I'd give it a shot. The end result was that I lost thousands of dollars. I went into crazy amounts of debt and had one of the most fulfilling years of my life uh, doing it. And that was when music felt real to me, like playing, being able to drive across the country and play to six people in Regina yeah. uh, was amazing <laughs> and and life-changing. And uh, I, I will never regret that decision, even though you know it took a long time for me to get to the point where music could even come close to paying the bills, you know, let alone like not just continually put me in debt. But, um, but music became real when I realized how much joy it uh, could give me by just simply just trying to connect with other people outside of my comfort zone. Yeah, I think in terms of music and career, music and business and money and things like that, uh, the thing I, I feel is like, uh, in that way, I am constantly trying to make it real. Um, as is Matthias, you know, like, yeah. I feel like it's just like constant work, uh, trying to make it real and making it real by the effort of it. Um, yeah, we've had a couple of, of lucky, lucky breaks in our lives, but nothing huge, you know? Um, so I think most of it is just like, uh, just choosing to, have it be real, I guess, and then working our butts off to make that a reality. Um, yeah. Can, can you remember uh, the first the first time you ever got paid for a show? Because that's a, an example of a kind of mm, real hit, you know. Right. Um, yeah. I, I I think maybe I can remember the first time I got paid for a show, but it was such a, a little amount of money. It was very exciting, of course, but it was kind of like great. $20. I'm, I'm excited about this. Uh, but maybe, maybe it is true to say that once we realized we could actually make, we could play certain shows and make a lot of money. I mean, to us, a lot of money, not maybe to someone with a job, but uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> that was, yeah, that was probably a, a profound moment. Like I remember driving back from a show in London, England and, uh, and just like doing the kind of accounting post show and just being like, Oh my God, we made that much money and we sold that much merch. And like, yeah, that feeling of like, like, okay, this is a, this is not a, not just, yeah, I'm not just delusional. <laughs> it's possible to make money in this one town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, let, let's, let's, uh, let's be realistic. Cause, cause uh, there's still a lot of cases where, 
um, that that isn't the case. Um, but but yeah, for me, like the 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 first time, I'm pretty sure the first time I ever received money for playing a show was at the Jolly Hangman in Peterborough, which used to be attached to Peter Robinson College. For those of you that uh, don't know your Peterborough late '90s history, um, it was like a shed basically that a lot yeah. of the touring bands at the time would come through. I'm not so sure that it was, it was definitely not safe. It was probably not legal in some ways. Um, it was sketchy. It sounded, you know, like a shed, um, but it was a cool spot to play. And it became sort of a clubhouse for a lot of local bands and a lot of touring bands would come through and sort of make connections. And I remember one show with a band that I was in at the time where we were on like a, you know, one of those classic, like six band bills, um, everybody plays for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever. And we got like 20 bucks, but between the four of us at the end of it. <laughs> and, and it was the first, that was the first time I can remember being like, Whoa, like what, why do we get money? Um, as a local band, you know, it just seemed like crazy to me. And I think we argued, we were like, no, 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 we shouldn't take this $20. <laughs> like clearly this should go to the professionals or something like that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that was, that was the first time. And, you know, uh, wages have, have not increased substantially since then, but, uh, but, uh, you know, enough to be able to kind of do it, you know, without, uh, without going into the epic amounts of debt that, that we used to. So, yeah, I don't know. The relationship between money and reality is interesting though. <laughs> I think it's different for, for musicians, um, and, and everyone else. Well, well, one one money reality for sure in the the let's call it still sort of in the kind of early days of of any band or you know um, artist is the is the reality of having some kind of uh, uh, day job or part time job at the same time that yeah. kind of keeps keeps the wheels and so obviously obviously for some people it's you do that maybe all your almost your entire career or a lot of the career or ins and outs but for the early days you know for, for me it was uh, I was always had these which were pretty good jobs actually at at um, working at grocery stores. And, and one of the things that was good, particularly in Kingston was I worked at the, um, the Loblaws, uh, at whatever that mall is there. And I was would do night shifts. So night shifts were kind of handy because you could, um, you could still kind of make some money, uh, you know, at night. And then, and of course, you know, it's, it's pretty hard and hard on your body, uh, to do that. But it meant that during the day you could actually get away with either doing all the things you do as a band, starting to practice, record, you know, we we were always touring up and down. Uh, you know, the four hundred one in Ontario. But did you did you guys have any interesting uh, jobs in those early days? Uh, memorable, memorable part time jobs. Oh yeah, some of them too memorable. Like I wish I could, I wish I could forget them. But um, uh, Ariel, do you want to jump in here? I feel like you've had some pretty interesting ones. I I've worked in a lot of uh, in the early days. I worked in a lot of restaurants. Um, I was never. Um, much of a, much of a cook, but, uh, I was a, a really quite an exceptional dishwasher. Um, I was, uh, well known in the, in the Peterborough restaurant scene for, for being <laughs> one of the best, best dishwashers. And so, nice. uh, I had a lot of those dishwashing gigs, um, which are also, you know, as everyone in the music world knows, restaurants are awesome, uh, for musicians because there's always a restaurant that you can find some crappy job at and, often you can leave and whether or not you get hired back doesn't matter that much because you know that there's always going to be another restaurant willing to take you in um, when you come back from tour or whatever. So I did a lot of that, like work for a little while at a restaurant gig, then go on tour and then come back and work at a restaurant again. Um, but because I have this sort of parallel academic life, um, I, you know, I talked about those early days when I like quit my TA job 
um, to for for music. Um, but then eventually, I, I went back to school and uh, did a lot more school. Uh, I finished a PhD um, and then toyed with the idea of going fully in that direction, and then realized that it was just not bringing me the joy that music was. So I do still occasionally do some sort of teaching contracts, but less and less because I realized that um, you know the God the sessional rates that universities pay are awful like barely better than than ta rates and and i can you know if i put that effort into music um i you know i can i can make that that same money doing music so i haven't done that that kind of thing in a while that's amazing yeah um i I don't know i I don't know if i've had any interest well you've had like actual real like cool jobs like you were the editor of the paper and in peterborough and you know, you did like, you did cool stuff. You worked at uh, the LSP Hall in, in St. John's. And- yeah, I usually supplemented music with like doing other work kind of in the arts. Um, yeah, yeah. Organizing festivals or promoting shows or managing theaters or doing marketing for festivals or theaters. <laughs> like that's better than a dish pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. And usually they're, they're uh, short-term contracts. So I just find one that works for me. Um, yeah. That's, that's actually a very good segue to the uh, sort of the, the last portion of the conversation, which I call flash forward. So the idea is that uh, we're kind of moving very quickly through the things that you're doing and all the things that you are currently doing and will be doing. But flash forward is to say, let's go right up to now and talk about the things that, that are going on. And one of the things that we have in common that's kind of interesting and I do want to talk about is because, so, uh, f- you know, for me doing music, I got out, I did, I had some, uh, you know, professional jobs and things like that. But one of, in the last bunch of years, I've started, uh, I've been doing these music festivals in Prince Edward County. And I would definitely say that some of the inspiration for that was coming out of playing at Lanya Vanya because it, it just, the whole, it was so many things about it that were, um, just mind blowing the way you did it, the way, the way the kind of, uh, the sort of, um, it was, you know, personal or something like that. Even the way you had food available, for example, I remember like you'd have, like everyone could have like lasagna every, every, every night you paid for hotels, uh, all that kind of stuff. It was so well done. So I'm assuming Ariel, then maybe you played, um, uh, probably an important role then. And maybe now where, where does, where does the, where, where do music festivals fit in? Um, Maybe even today, I don't. I don't actually know the history of Lanya Vanya. This is a, a very good question that I could talk about forever. Um, but Lanya Vanya was started. Um, I think you guys played in the second year. So yeah. uh, the year before, Matthias and I started the festival with our friend Dave Lander, uh, who now lives in Guelph, and our friend Andrea Vincent, who's now the creative director of Sappy Fest. Uh, and the four of us started the festival and. We had two um, two ideal festivals that the Burning Hell had played at that point um, that we were like, these are good festivals versus festivals we had played that had not felt as good. And those were the Dawson City Music Festival and Sappy Fest. And, uh, yep. and we kind of broke it down to what we liked about those festivals, um, which we felt were they prioritized artists, you know. If artists are having a good time, then I think everybody else is having a good time if people feel uh, looked after looked after um then that's really important also if artists are at the shows like everybody feels like oh this is a community you know these people are part of our community um the audience and the and the artists together uh so i think that was really important trying to get people to come for the whole weekend and be out and amongst people you know not really have too many kind of 
um, backstages. Obviously, you know, you need a backstage before your performance or whatever, but like at a big folk festival, you know, all the artists are, are drinking backstage at the backstage bar, which is fun sometimes, but um, in a small community oriented festival, we felt like it was really important for people to, to be mingling and to meet people in bands. And uh, especially in St. John's where um, it's pretty remote. Uh, we wanted local bands to be on, share some of these bills with, with people who had a higher profile across the country. We also didn't want to be just Canadian. So we were trying to invite a lot of people from Europe and the States. Um, and uh, especially a lot of that had to do with where we were like Newfoundland is so close to Ireland and the UK and, uh, and North South, you know, like New York is not that far away in the grand scheme of things. I mean, Newfoundland's far away from anything, but yeah, <laughs> um, so these are some of the values that we had and some of the, the things that we we're trying to keep in mind as we made Lanya Banya. Um, we're really lucky that it has continued under uh, new management. We passed it off because um, we moved to Berlin and weren't, weren't in St. John's anymore, um, but they, they still do a, a fantastic job. And um, I still love being involved with festivals, um, but it's just also so much work. It is. Um, yep. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I would, we would love to do something else, I think, at some point, but also it's hard to kind of muster up the wherewithal after, after doing Lanya Vanya. Yeah. It was, it, it's just, yeah, I feel for you. That's a lot of work. And I think, like, but, you know, you're, you're a perfect example of some, the, the sort of person who should be running a festival. Like, I kind of feel like if every festival had at least one musician mm -hmm. with real touring experience, uh, at least on the board, you know, if not in a, in a, in a creative uh, directing role, um, we'd all be better off because um, I think musicians who have experience playing other festivals really understand what Ariel's talking about. Like the difference between a festival that you come away from being like, oh yeah, okay, well, it was what it was. You know, the sound was awful. We, uh, we didn't get to see anyone and uh, don't know if people liked it or whatever versus a festival that feels like, magic because you're making real connections with other artists. You're getting to know a community that you've maybe never been to before. Um, and you leave that weekend um, feeling like your, your life, your musical life is richer for it. And that's pretty rare. Um, and I think that musicians and other artists being in charge of that stuff um, is, is a pretty important step towards that. That that was exactly the impression I had. I really I I don't believe I'd met either one of you, but it was just apparent almost from the first time that we started talking uh, that you you it's just a different way of looking. And when Christine Bress had played a bunch of festivals over the years, but there was something about that one that was so unique. And this is going to give me my chance to talk about one of my favorite shows of all time, which was at that festival. And you can guess who it was, but I was familiar with B.A. Johnson's music, but I had never seen him before. <laughs> and I think if there's one place you're going to see him, probably it, it is, I, and you can tell me the name of the venue, but it was, uh, I walked into this, this, this bar and we had had the chance to meet B.A. the night before at the Wax Mannequin show, which was also really amazing at a really small uh, club. But when B.A. started, what blew me away was everyone knew the words, you know, and, and, and there was, and there was, you know, he had, he had uh, just his whole entire, um, you know, thing is something that I've been, ever since that show, I've been trying to explain to people that have never had the chance to see him, uh, that you should see him and you must see him. 
and then also listen to his recordings, which is, this could be the flash forward part where, um, you know, BA just put a record out, whatever it was last week, amazing record. Uh, you know, you both are all over that record, I believe. And, you know, in the last bunch of things that he's done, it's just so wild to me, the connection between yourselves and BA. And what I wanted to know is maybe how did that start? And it seems to be so fruitful and continuing to this day. Well, BA um, used to, uh, he's an old Peterborough friend um, and he used to be a a promoter there um, uh, in those days. Um, And I I knew him back then, but I really sort of got to know him uh, more from just the music scene in Canada. And yeah, I mean, anyone listening that hasn't seen BA, you're absolutely right. Please go out and see him anywhere. Um, The best thing about his touring career is that um, at least in Canada, there's a B.A. Johnson fan in every tiny little town, in every suburb. Um, he can play anywhere, and he does. Um, and the way he connects with his fans, I mean, he would laugh so hard if you heard me talking about him this way. But the way, honestly, the way he connects <laughs> with his fans is really special, really magical, really um, subversive sometimes, very sort of, uh, you know, it's it's outrageous. But it's also, you know, he's created like the most loyal community of fans I've ever seen. Um, uh, it's, it's totally incredible. And he asked me out of the blue, um, maybe five or six years ago to, um, to produce an album for him. And I was like, man, like, thank you. But I don't, I think you got the wrong guy. Like I, I, I don't do that stuff. And he was like, no, 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 let's try it. And so we did that. And, uh, that album was gremlins three. Um, and then we've been working together ever since. So I've done, done the last four records with him. Um, and I should, I shouldn't go on forever cause I really could about BA. But the one thing I'll say is that as, uh, magical as his live performances can be, um, I really respect him so much as a songwriter. I think that, um, he's doing something. Some people will sort of hear a BA song and sort of dismiss him as a novelty act. He is absolutely not a novelty act. Um, it, if you dig deep into his catalog, you'll find like one of the most thoughtful, uh, creative songwriters uh, working in Canada today. And I think that really, really comes out on this new record, Argo Suck. Um, and, you know, there's jokes aplenty, you know, th- but there's also some very, very um, serious songs. He writes a lot about class and and yep. labor politics. Um, and, you know, he he has a he has a really special way of, of writing what I would consider working class anthems that are not like, someone hitting you over the head with a political mallet like he's really thoughtful and and kind of you know gets inside characters um in his songs in a in a very special way so yeah i have nothing but nothing but admiration for him as a as a performer and a songwriter yeah he's kind of like the bruce springsteen of canada yeah he's like <laughs> yeah it's like bruce springsteen you know yeah a, 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 an even sweatier bruce springsteen um, with, with more uh firecrackers not as jacked and, yeah, yeah, not quite as jacked yeah <laughs> Okay, let's let's talk about just you know uh, again we're we're, we're 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 today you know uh, one of the things about I mean it just amazes me uh, through social media that I follow all the places that you you've lived you've toured you guys you really are what I would call lifetime working musicians out of out of all these things that you're doing what what's something maybe currently recently that's really something really interesting that you're doing or you have done uh, that maybe you might want to let people know about. Well, um, there's, there's a few things we could talk about, but, uh, 
I think, you know, recently, like, like a lot of people, um, you know, we've gotten more and more, uh, interested in, um, in, in the issues that we're all sort of facing when it comes to climate change and, and, and whatnot and, and creative approaches to, uh, talking about it and, and, and thinking about it. Um, and, uh, our third member, Jake Nichol, um, during the pandemic, he was stuck on his dad's farm in Ontario and he, he was, he, we were trying to record with him. We were in Newfoundland at the time and we were trying to finish our album, our new album, Garbage Island and, and, uh, sort of sending tracks back and forth and he needed a place to, to mix and record. Um, and so, uh, Jake being Jake, he built, uh, a brand new studio out of a 1970s, uh, camper trailer, um, and put solar panels on the top of it. So it could be completely off grid. And since then, I mean, we finished the record in, in, in that, that camper. Um, and then since then we've used it for various other projects. Last summer, we took it to Sappy Fest where we, um, we called it the Phono Automat, where we had people, um, anyone who wanted to sort of wander by could jump in for a five minute recording session. They could record whatever they wanted. We had gear and, and everything cool. uh, for them to use. It recorded straight to tape and then instantly sort of duplicated in, in the mix down process, instantly duplicated, uh, for, uh, cassette copies, um, of, of their recording that they could go away with. So it's sort of like a photo booth, uh, but for recording, um, and, and, you know, generated some really good discussions about sort of improvisation and, and, uh, you know, anyone can do it kind of DIY spirit, but also about how, uh, how we can approach, uh, recording in the future in a more sustainable way. Um, and we're looking forward this year to doing a lot more projects along that line. Yeah. We've actually been invited uh to go to glasgow and kind of remount that project um we'll be building a small shed uh recording studio that we will put on a trailer and cart around the city of glasgow um to to uh, kind of yeah record people in various ways and also collaborate with um some academics at the um uh, at the university who are doing various kind of climate related and uh, ecology related studies. So um, recording and uh, broadcasting their talks and then uh, recording, getting the people of Glasgow to uh, form uh, bands on the spot, which we know from the history of music, they are very good at. They are very good at that. I have a feeling it'll be very successful in that, that way anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess in terms of future stuff, uh, I mean, we, I hope we have a lot more records and stuff in us, but we've also really been enjoying kind of expanding, um, what, what making music for us might look like and, and doing different projects. And I hope bringing some of the, the spirit of Lanya Vanya, um, to a different project that is maybe a little less exhausting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I would say like, yeah, more, I, I agree with Ariel. Like I don't ever want to stop making records or touring. Um, but I am more and more interested in, um, getting a little bit more experimental, a little bit weirder and doing more production and more sort of art projects, um, rather than just sort of, uh, album cycle after album cycle for sure. I mean, the, um, that, that is again, one of the things about your, uh, the career that you've had in music that is unique to, uh, you just you you have a glo you've had a global outlook is what I would say in a global traveling and global impact and and you've done things in different places very unique for 
you know, for the size of, you know, artists that you, you are, you know, I mean, it's not like you have, uh, it's, it's, it's on a, you know, it's on a modest level and you've done all these interesting things, but, um, I'm going to kind of move, you know, closer to kind of like a final, a final question. And, and I'm just going to comment on your, the lyrics. So, uh, one of the things that, uh, I find that I can be walking, uh, down the street in the woods and, uh, burning hell lyrics will, will pop into my head. Uh, sometimes, you know, a song like Robert's bad end, uh, every end is a bad end in the end. Did I get that right? That's right. <laughs> um, things like that are, uh, you know, there, there's this, you know, there's so many interesting, uh, just lyrical, uh, you know, brilliance that you've, you've, you've put out over the years. And, and I think that's probably a result of, of, of the life that you've lived, all the things that you've done so far and all the, again, things you're going to do. But I do like to try to end the conversation on something approximating sort of a life lesson that comes out of, having a, a, a life in music or a life in art. And what, what I want to know is, you know, um, as you think of, you know, the things that you've done, one way I've put this question is what would you say to your, your 12 year old self, if you could go back and say, you know, uh, advice on trying to make a life in music, that's one way to think of it, but maybe just sort of a type of a life lesson uh, coming out of it. What, what would each of you say for that? I would say anything is possible literally anything um uh with a with a bit of hard work and some some uh friends who are game to give it a go um yeah i i i think uh any crazy idea you have can happen that's the profound life lesson i would give to my 12 year old self (laughs) yeah i think i would say to, to my 12 year old self or to anyone really um if you're not doing it for love, then you're not doing it for the right reasons, um, at all. And, and that, uh, it just proves more and more true. I think to my, to me anyway, as, as time goes on, I mean, even as this becomes a more sustainable life for us, um, it's so important to find joy and to, and to find motivation, um, in art and, uh, and to let that be the guide and not any sort of, not any sort of capitalist version of, of success or ambition. Um, because as Ariel said, anything is possible and, and, and staying true to your vision and, and staying true to the, the joy that, that brought you to music in the first place is the most important thing. was the burning hell with empty world from garbage island which you heard them talk about a bit and uh earlier on in the show we heard the song the seminal song i love the things that people make which you can hear re-recorded on the album tiktok 
And I just want to say one final thanks to the very humble and accomplished rock and roll couple that is Matthias and Ariel. Thank you for joining us here, joining me today. And I hope that the music and your super cool rock and roll connection never stops. like this podcast be sure to subscribe like and tell all your best music loving friends about it today's episode was brought to you by zunior.com and me lemonade dave i've done a lot of things in music over the years but these days i mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in prince edward county i'm gonna crack a cold one right now but if you're ever in pec be sure to ask for it by name and tell them dave sent you lemonade dave for a treat